This message was recorded live at Life Church Lancashire, a contemporary Christian church in the north of England. Learn more at lifelanks.org. And this morning, I want us to think about what it means to be a chosen people. It says in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9 that you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. So when Jesus arrived on the scene, everything changed. And in the wake of Jesus, this community grew up around him. We now call it the church, but they didn't really have a name for it. It was just a community. It was a bunch of people who recognized something had happened. And so this community grew up around Jesus. And as a result of Jesus, out of the Jewish community and began to reach into non-Jewish communities. And these communities spread out from Jerusalem across antiquity after Jesus' resurrection. And they began to try and figure out how should we organize ourselves? How should we live? How should we go about doing things? Because everything's changed. Everything's different. So what now are we going to do? And what they find, these people, these people who here are called a, a chosen people, is that they end up almost like strangers in their own land. The beginning of this letter, a letter that was written to, to these kind of groups in a, a region of modern-day Turkey. The beginning of this letter, 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1, says this, To God's elect, exiled, scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Exiles, even in their own land. Not people who'd necessarily been displaced or, or moved or emigrated, but sometimes people who'd grown up even in those very regions. But now, both Jews and Gentiles found themselves like exiles in their own land, like strangers in their own home cities. And they began to figure out, okay, if we're exiles now at home, if we're a chosen people, then how do we interact with wider society? How do we be good neighbors? And this is not a unique challenge to this community. In fact, it's a challenge to every community. It's a challenge to every culture, and it's a challenge that we still face today. A few weeks ago on the BBC website, there was this article about the town of Blackburn, a town still divided. Now, 10 years ago, research found that Blackburn was one of the most segregated towns in the whole country. 10 years on, has anything changed? Well, they found out that actually 10 years on, Blackburn is more divided and more segregated than it was in 2007. And that actually the split between the white population and the Asian Muslim population has increased, has grown. Segregation, division. I don't expect that Burnley or Nelson or Accrington or any of the other towns that we come from as well as Blackburner may be much different from that. This is a challenge that still exists today. Because communities ask, well, how can we live together how we, we are special. We have our own identity. We have our own beliefs. We have our own customs. We have our own way of doing things. We have our own values. So how do we interact with those who have 
different values and different customs and different ways of doing things. And this was the same challenge that came to these first Christians who received this letter, First Peter. It says, in, as it goes on in chapter 4, in verse 14, that as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy in the book of Leviticus. So God is holy. What does that mean? It's one of those religious words that we throw around. It sounds like, you know, God is religious. That doesn't sound right, does it? That doesn't make sense. What does it mean, God is holy? Well, it means God's different. God can't be contained within our own boundaries. God is something other than what we are. God is not the created. He is the creator. God is different. God is distinct. God is other. It's a designation of God as God. God is beautiful. God invokes wonder and deserves honor and is awesome and incredible and inspiring. And God is unapproachable. God is holy and to be revered. And just as God is holy, so the way you are, the people you are, because you are holy through relation to God, not because of something intrinsic to you, should live out in a way that fits with that, that tarries with that, that is in keeping with who you are, a chosen people. God is holy. So if, if God's holy, and we're God's holy people, and we're a chosen people, and we're special, and we have our own culture, and our own values, and our own beliefs, how do we interact with everybody else? How do we interact with the society? What should our position be? Are we going to end up like Blackburn? Maybe they wondered back in Turkey. So the New Testament and these letters like First Peter, they actually address this issue. They actually address this issue, which is still an issue for us today. It's still important to us today. And First Peter is actually one of the most extensive discourses in the New Testament on the question of how the community should interact with wider society. And I want to show you the dilemma that was faced by the community and the options that they had. Can everybody see this? Awesome. So the community are given a holy calling. So, we... Well, you can take notes. Here we go. So the community are given a holy calling. I definitely can't write any bigger than that and fit everything on. So they're given a holy calling and... They have received this. So what are they going to do? How are they going to be identified and keep their uniqueness, their their values, their culture? What are they going to do? How are they going to maintain that? Well, maybe the best option would be to withdraw. Because holiness involves disassociation from the unholy. So perhaps we need to withdraw. We, we need to uh, step out of the, the culture and the society and the system and withdraw that we can be the, the, the holy people together. You see, they have a concern. 
And their concern that leads them to withdraw is that they want to protect their identity. We, we don't want our identity to be lost in the broader culture. So let's withdraw from it and become our own uh, group. Let's retreat. Let's escape. Let's isolate ourselves so we can protect our identity. And this is a temptation. And this is a challenge that comes to the community. But you see, the community have a bigger call. This call is part of a, a bigger challenge, a bigger summons that they're given, and it is a claim on their allegiance. Now, allegiance isn't something we think about a lot in Britain. It's not a word I hear a lot. You hear it a lot more in the United States, because in the United States, every day they start the school day with the children uh, in the, in the front of the classroom, I think, also in North Korea, not really aware of anyone else that does it apart from the U.S. and North Korea. But they start their day by going to the front of the classroom and, and reciting the Pledge of Allegiance. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. And they give, they pledge, they give themselves, they promise, they give their allegiance to the flag, to their nation, to the idea of that. They commit themselves to it. And in First Peter, these exiles, this holy community, these chosen people, have competing claims on their allegiance. They have the culture around them. They have the things they've been brought up in. And now they have this call to be part of the new thing that God is doing. And in chapter 4, Peter says, Since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves with the same attitude, because those who have suffered in their bodies are done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. So the concern of those of a holy calling, I'm going to go on in in a moment, is to live for the will of God. This is their primary concern. And these verses go on. Verse 3, for you've spent enough time in the past doing what pagans, that's godless people, choose to do. Living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. So there's a way of life, there's practices that belong to your past. They belong to the culture. These were societal norms. These were things that happened. There, There were these... This description put together would evoke for people not just a list of uh, separate sins that, you know, Peter came up with on the back, the back of a fag packet. But actually, what these, these terms would have done would have evoked this idea of these, these parties, these feasts that were happening in the culture, which, which, were, which were occasions of just carnage. They were occasions of abuse. They were occasions of those who who could afford to have the the food and the drink and the property and the music and the organization would 
engage in all kinds of crazy practices and crazy goings on that this verse and these, uh, this list kind of conjures up. And these, ca- these kind of parties, these kind of events were, were almost an accepted practice. They were a cultural thing. They were things that the, the ruling Romans would participate in. It was part of their culture. It was a normal thing. You work Monday to Friday, and then you go and spend all your wages on the Friday night down at the pub. That's normal, right? It's accepted. It's expected. It's British culture. It's normal. It's cultural practice. Well, just like for them, they had these sort of accepted cultural practices. You go into work on Monday morning and tell people, oh, I'm rough from the weekend. People don't think that's strange. People think that's normal. People have a conversation piece. People don't shun you. But people, most of the time, in, in most places, would, would join in with you, would talk with you, would interact with you, would discuss that with you. Normal. But it's not normal everywhere. It's culture. And these things were culture. They were societal norms. But the claim on their allegiance to live for the will of God meant that at times they were out of step with the norms of their society because they weren't taking their values from the culture around them, but they were actually aligning their values with the culture of heaven. Their allegiance was in a different place. So what happened is they started not to participate. They started not to participate in sometimes the rituals uh, to honor the, the gods or the emperor, they started not to participate in these parties. They started not to participate in these sorts of practices. And what happened is this community, this chosen people, began to be discriminated against. Not formally persecuted at this time, but shunned, left aside, not involved in, in business dealings, not involved in social dealings, lo- losing positions of political power and influence, discriminated against and accused. You people with your different actions, your different lifestyle, you're a threat to social cohesion. You, you people, are uh, you, you're, you're stoking the wrath of the gods against us. You see, being good neighbors doesn't necessarily mean being good Britons. And sometimes, even when we're we're good neighbors, you know, we think everybody's going to like us. Well, guess what? That might not be the case. Being good neighbors doesn't necessarily mean being good Britons. But being a chosen people means aligning our values with a culture of heaven. And this persecution, what should it do? It should actually push them more in this direction, to withdraw, to protect their identity, to, to, to stop interacting, to stop being in the stream of, of normal society. The persecution should push them away. It should push them underground. Or perhaps it should cause them to abandon their faith. You see, on the other side of the pressure to withdraw is the pressure to conform. That's another way to avoid the persecution, to just conform. You see, there, if you conform, you can, can be concerned here with protecting your status, 
protecting your business, protecting your position, protecting your place in society. Your concern, if your concern is protecting your status, you will conform to the expectations of society that allow you to be a part of that society. But you see, there's a problem here. There's a risk. And the risk for those that conform, who are concerned with protecting their status, is that they would lose their distinctiveness. And this, remember, is where we started. They have a holy calling to be different, to be distinct in the midst of the culture. And if they conform under the pressure of persecution or the temptations that beset them, they will lose their distinctiveness in that culture. But you see, the persecution doesn't cause them to conform. And it doesn't cause them to withdraw either. Because the thing about Christianity is this. Christianity is not a tribal religion. It's, it's not a, a limited cultural belief. It, it's not something that, uh, that if we keep to ourselves, we can protect and maintain within our own heritage. But Christianity's beliefs are about the fate of the entire cosmos. Christianity's beliefs are about ultimate concern. So it's incongruous for Christianity to function as a tribal religion. It doesn't work. It doesn't make sense. And what happens in the New Testament? Well, the persecution actually serves to push the church out. It doesn't pressure them to conform, and it doesn't push them underground, but it actually pushes them out geographically and societally across antiquity. They don't stay where they are, but they're pushed out, and the missional spirit leads them to further and further territory. Instead, the community are invited not to withdraw or to conform, but to be good neighbors. This is what it says in chapter 2. Verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans that though they may accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds. Did you see it? Good lives, good deeds, good neighbors. They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. You see, it's about living good lives among. Art can only be helpful when it's on display. Have you ever been to an art gallery and it just stopped you in your tracks? It, 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 it captured a moment. It, it got hold of you. Maybe you, you, you've had a bit like this, this picture of, um, of Guernica. Maybe you've been to Madrid, as I've had the pleasure to do, and you've stood before this picture and you've wondered at it. Wondered at it. You, you've marveled at it. Maybe there's been something for you that, hey... I've asked like four times. Let's get this picture up. Come on. Here we go. You all had it in your head anyway, didn't you? You're all good fans of Picasso. This is Picasso's comment on the Spanish Civil War. And you can't stand in front of it without it moving you, without it challenging you, without it stirring in you. You see, art does something when it's on display. It raises questions. It can change things. It can provoke things. But it can't do anything when it's in the artist's studio. 
It can't do anything when the canvas sheets are still on top of it. See, that book you haven't written yet isn't helping anybody. That, that song that's unfinished is not making a difference. But when art's on display, it can. And it's the same thing with our lives. You know, our holy calling, the call to be a chosen people, is no good if we withdraw. Because the thing is, if we withdraw, we ignore the priestly function that we've been given. What does a priest do? A priest has intimate access to God and mediates between God and the people. And that is what, remember, where we started. You are called to be a chosen people, a royal priesthood. You see, and if our lives aren't on display, they don't raise any questions. They can't inspire any change. In chapter 3 of First Peter, in verse 15, it says, But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Again, allegiance. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Be a good neighbor. See, always be prepared to ask for give a reason. Listen, who's asking you? Who's asked you this week to give a reason? Who's asked you this month to give a reason? Who's asked you this year to give a reason? Who's asking you? Well, they'll ask you if your life is on display, if your life is open, if you're engaging. You're not conforming or withdrawing, but you're living out your holy calling even in the midst of. That's when it provokes questions. Always be ready to give an answer with gentleness and respect. Eugene uh, Boring, an American New Testament scholar, says this. It's an amazing name, isn't it? The guy's name is... Here, here we go. It's on screen. It, the guy's name is literally Professor Boring. Like, who signs up for his classes? You imagine talking to your fellow undergraduate. Uh, what classes are you signed up for? I'm not sure. Thinking about going to see Professor Boring. It's not going to happen, is it? But he's, he's brilliant, and he says this. Christianity is not to be mistaken for a mystery cult with secrets to conceal from the uninitiated. Its ordinary members, all of them, are prepared to explain who they are and why they live as they do. Are you? Are you? I love this. Good neighbors, because we have a priestly function. We are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. You see, when you withdraw, there's a risk over here. And the risk is that we would lose our purpose. If we withdraw, we lose our reason for being. To be that priesthood, to be those lives that are on display, we lose that purpose. And you see, what this actually is, is a path. You see, the holy calling is the path. That we've been called to. But on one side, there's a ditch called conformity. And on the other side, there's a ditch called withdrawal. And what happens is Christianity, historically, tends to veer to the left or to the right. And say, withdraw. Where's the holiness? Where's where's the righteousness? We're, We're losing our identity. We're being swamped by the culture. We're losing our values. But on the other hand, we have this whole thing where, hey... You guys are not engaging. You guys are separate. You, you, you guys are not involved in changing society. And actually, 
Instead of firing arrows at each other, instead of creating some conservative liberal dichotomy, instead of being involved in these wars and these complaints and being a broken record, we should actually understand that what we've been called to is a third way. And the real risk is this. The real risk is that we will veer. That we will veer to the left or the right. That we will conform to a point where we do not embody our holiness anymore. And we are no different from anybody else. And we have, we have no distinctiveness. And we have nothing to bring and nothing to add. But on the other side of the coin, if we become so concerned with our tribal identity and our security, that we're fearful, that we cloister ourselves away, that we hide ourselves away, we lose our very purpose for being here. Are you with me? So we got to keep the car on the road. we got to keep on the path because there's a third way. And we got to stop, get out of these arguments, get out of this, this mess, get out of the shooting arrows at each other in Christianity. And remember, we are here to be good neighbors. You see, what the community actually do is they modify the cultural norms. What happens in 1 Peter is that 1 Peter uses a form of the the Greco-Roman household codes. These were ways of living, ways of acting, ways of being in society that that people were accepted, that people wrote down, that people understood the way society worked. And 1 Peter begins to shift it, begins to change it, and begins to see how things are different. 1 Peter becomes good news for women. Now, 1 Peter isn't a, a feminist utopia. Let's not kid ourselves. This is 2,000 years ago. We still got a long way to go towards equality. But First Peter starts to shift things, starts to change things. It says in chapter 3 and verse 7 that women are co-heirs with you in the grace of life. Now think about this. This is a society where women have, single women or married women have no property rights. They have no property rights. And any familial property gets signed over to their husband when they get married. So women don't have rights to own things. But Peter says, in the ultimate inheritance, in the ultimate deposit, in the the ultimate reward, you've got co-heirs. Your joint status in what Jesus is bringing. I mean, this is a shift. This is controversial. This is countercultural. This is challenging. And First Peter begins to shift this. That's just one example of how they're encouraged to be an alternative community. The community functions as an outpost of the coming kingdom of God. It embodies now what is yet to be. Brian, he read this earlier. Revelation chapter 1. You are a kingdom and priests. You're a community which embodies, which shows the world what God is like, shows people what the future is going to look like, shows people what a community looks like when justice and mercy are fundamental to it, when a community is living right before God and you bring the truth and the brilliance and the beauty and the love of who God is to people. So when they meet us, they feel that. You see, don't define yourself solely by what you're against. Don't define yourself solely by what you're opposed to, as if, as if holiness it, it lives over here and it's all about those who, who don't do that and don't do the other and don't do the third thing. You see, you know, that we may think is, 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 a, is a way of protecting identity, but it may actually be a way of conforming to our culture that wants to 
pit people against each other, that wants to scapegoat people, that wants to blame people. You see, don't define yourself by what you're against. When people meet us, when they interact with the holy community, they should interact with love. They should interact with truth and beauty. They should interact with brilliance and life. They should interact with joy. You see, holy living definitely means turning away from dehumanizing practices. Things that make us less than what we are. Behaviors that actually break relationships, break community. We have to step away from them. We have to avoid them. We have to be cautious. We've got to watch out because these things can derail us. They can take us off track. They're not the best that is laid out for us on this path. We've got to stay well away from them. But at the same time, we don't define ourselves by that. People don't know us for that, but they know us for the qualities that we do have. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 8, it says that though you've not seen him, Jesus Christ, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you, are, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. This is a joy that can't wholly be deferred to a future age. In fact, when people meet you, that's how they describe you at work. You go out of the room and they say, look, there she goes, Sarah. She's filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Are you with me? You see, if they don't describe that about you, are you living like Jesus? Are you following this Jesus? Because do you know this Jesus? Because Peter says, though you haven't seen him, you know him. And it fills you with an expressible and glorious joy. So if you're not passionate, you're not joyful, it's inexpressible. It spills out of you. It fills you. If that's not in you, do you know him? I'm preaching today. You're listening. You see, First Peter allows us to be neighborly. You see, you can compromise without being compromised. Did you catch it? You can compromise without being compromised. And that's the key thing, that in culture, we will have to conform to a degree. We will have to compromise. There's things that aren't important that we can let go. We, we don't need to be like the missionaries who made Africans wear suits. Not cool. You see, we compromise, we change, we shift, but we've got to make sure that we're not compromised in our message and our values because our ultimate allegiance is to Christ and he is the source of what we value. But it allows us, it gives room for us to be neighborly. You see, good neighbors doesn't necessarily mean being good Britons, but neither does it mean that we can't be good Britons. You see, even here in 1 Peter, they're challenged that To honor the emperor. Now, the emperor was their oppressor. The emperor was the one sanctioning these sort of practices. The emperor was the one that was was keeping them down. But a gift was given by the first Christians called secular space. Now, this has been so misunderstood. And we think that a secular, quote, agenda, a godless a place without God, that agenda is something that's brought up by the opponents of Christianity into Europe to to remove God from our culture and our influence. But you need to know your history. Secular space was invented by Christians because Christians said there is a space, there is a sphere within which authorities can be legitimately respected and obeyed. We can pay our taxes 
So what are Christians? Well, Christians aren't the, the violent dissenters. Christians aren't the ones, uh, because Christians follow Jesus. You see, before Jesus, there was a man called Judah Maccabee, Judah the Hammer. And that's a great name. He sounds like a w, uh, WE wrestler or something. Judah the Hammer, I love it. But Judah the Hammer, you see, he came to violently overthrow the Romans. He came wielding a sword, but Jesus came as a prince of peace. You see, so, so what Peter is saying is that, look, you don't have to stop paying your taxes because you say Jesus is Lord. You, do, you don't have to, to go and smash up government departments and burn down the royal palaces because you say Jesus is Lord. But actually, it's, it's a polite resistance. Uh, the theologian Miroslav Volf calls it a, a soft difference. It's not the hard difference that defines ourselves by what we're opposed. So when people think Christians, they think they're always moaning. They're always foaming at the mouth. They hate this group. They hate that group. They hate those people. No. But it's a sort of difference where when those lives are on display, people say, you guys have hope. What is the reason for the hope that you have? What is the reason for the joy that you have? What is the reason for the way you live together in community. So whilst neither fleeing from the culture nor conforming to it, we're called to endure. You see, when you take the third way, you get shot at from both sides. Religious fundamentalists don't like you. And those in charge of culture and institutions don't like you either. But we have a bigger calling. And we have a more important concern than, than being liked. Because we're called to be holy, but it's a holiness of engagement. How can you be separate and engaged? Well, only when you look at Jesus. You see, Jesus was a man concerned with being devout. He was concerned with his, his cleanliness, both physically and ritually. And as a rabbi, he, he couldn't have prevented himself from, from worshipping, from, from, from transgressing that cleanliness to touch the unclean. But when a man came to Jesus with leprosy, a, a disease that could be passed on by touch, a, a disease which prevented you from worshipping, which meant it prevented you from playing a full part in community and in society... Jesus reached out and he touched the man. Now, what happened? Now, what should have happened is the man's uncleanness should have made Jesus unclean, both ritually and physically. He should have caught something, should have been passed on. But when Jesus touched the leper, the leper's uncleanness didn't make Jesus unclean. Jesus' cleanness made the man clean. Jesus' holiness made the man holy. And we can be fearful and withdraw thinking that if we go out there, if we're involved, what's going to happen to our cleanness? But actually, I think Jesus gives us a confidence and he gives us an example that actually our light is going to shine in a dark place and the darkness has not overcome it. So we need to wrestle with this idea of what it means to both be Chosen people and good neighbors. It's a holiness of engagement. It's a missional holiness, a sending holiness, a going holiness. As we follow 
what Jesus, who Jesus said he was and who he said we are, the light of the world. Discover more about us at lifelanks.org and stay inspired by subscribing to the podcast via iTunes. Thanks for listening.